Milwaukee Brewers are the latest Major League Baseball team weighing relocation following stadium issues, plus later an interview with a leader in the trading card world to talk about the industry's latest revival. It's Monday, August 14th. I'm writer Doug Greenberg filling in for Owen Poindexter, and you're listening to Front Office Sports Today. The Milwaukee Brewers have yet to agree on a taxpayer-funded package to improve their home stadium, American Family Field, leading to reports that they could consider moving if they weren't able to strike a deal. Uh, Joining me now to discuss this story further is newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Good to have you back on here. Thank you. Um, So, yeah. So, Eric, let's let's get right into it. Um, How did we get to this point with the Brewers? This seems like, in my mind at least, everything seemed fine, and this seems to kind of be coming out of nowhere. Well, yes and no. It's it's actually sort of been quietly months sort of in development. It was pretty early this year where the Brewers put out a pretty extensive um, report detailing the – improvements that they saw needed at American Family Field. We've got, you know, this is a building more than 20 years old now and sort of moving on to that next phase of its life cycle, you know, and really hasn't had a, you know, major overhaul since its opening. And there was that detailed report that amounted to about $450 million uh, of needed improvements. And these improvements by terms of the lease are the responsibility of the public sector. There's a ballpark district uh, in Wisconsin that governs this whole situation. And um, there's just not been a mechanism that's been approved in the uh, state legislature to fund those improvements. So that's kind of where we are right now in terms of you've got sort of a trilateral thing between the team, the executive branch in in Wisconsin and the legislative branch in Wisconsin, all trying to sort of come together. Um, And then of course, within that legislative branch, you've got Democrats and Republicans divided on everything as they are on everything else. And so, um, you know, it just makes for a pretty difficult situation right now. Yeah. And, you know, whenever you're having issues with a stadium, you know, the natural next progression then is talking about possibly relocating standard Um, operating procedure. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we saw this play out so recently with the A's and um, obviously the Coliseum, you know, had been an issue for a while. Um, but now that kind of conversation is starting to come up with the Brewers, which in my mind, I went to school in Wisconsin. It's hard to me for me to even think of the Brewers not being there. Um, but if, you know, do you think that this, you know, that the moving talk is realistic? Do you think that it's a bargaining chip? Um, and but if you do think that they're going to move, you know, where what are the possibilities here? Well, I'll answer that in two two stages here. First and foremost, the substantive question, I would say it's still more unlikely than likely, um, even though there's a lot of unhappiness with the situation. And Rob Manfred actually went to Milwaukee in, in May to sort of help press this issue. There hasn't been further progress since then. Uh, it's important to note that we still have a substance different situation here than in Oakland. Oakland is just literally falling apart and you've got something that there that's not even close to major league quality here. This is still, yes, there are upgrades that need to be uh, made, but the bones of this place, uh, you know, stand by my prior comments. Yes, it's a 20 plus year old facility, uh, but this is still a vastly different building than the Coliseum. So there, there are some marked differences there. Um, Then you add in the fact that this is a well-performing market. This, you know, even though one of baseball's smaller markets does very well in attendance relative to its size, does very well in TV ratings relative to its size. 
And again, this is also the market, even though uh, Bud Selig isn't commissioner anymore, you know, while Bud Selig is still alive and he still lives there, having this team leave town, that's kind of unthinkable on that level as well. So you put all that together, I still think it's more unlikely than likely that they leave. If they were to leave, though, I think Nashville goes right to the top of the list. you got a surging market, three major pro teams, new facilities that have either been built or on the way in the case of the Titans. And their triple and the Brewers AAA team is already there already. And so uh, there's there's a lot to like in that scenario. But again, I would say we've got more steps to go before we really get to that kind of DEFCON level. Yeah, no, well, well put. And I mean, that's a relief for me to hear. As I said, went to school in Wisconsin. All of my friends still call it Miller Park, by the way. I don't think anyone's gotten used to American Family Field. No. Um, but I, I guess that raises the question, too. You know, that that change come came a couple years ago. And like I said, everyone in Wisconsin was all up in arms about it. I mean, Miller Park was just so, kind of a perfect uh a perfect name for that stadium. But, you know, does does any of that private money sort of play into this, you know, that sponsorship money, or is it it has to all be from taxpayers here? No, there, there's going to – the substantive improvements would come from the public sector, again, by terms of the lease. Uh, but usually in these things, as we get to a final deal, they'll probably will be, uh, particularly as it relates to things like clubhouses and things to really kind of make the – the team happy um, that aren't necessarily part of that core lease. You could see private money coming in for some of those extra kind of bells and whistles to put it most simply. Um, but the, again, the way that the lease works, this is fundamentally at the, at the foot of the public sector. Again, just by the way that the terms of the current deal are revisited. Now, if you get to a different kind of deal and you shift the sliders a little bit, then Mark Adonazio and the Brewers would need to get something else in return. And maybe there's something else that they're looking for. This is, again, the, the dance that you do in negotiation. Okay. So so it, it needs to basically come from the public as it stands Fundamentally, right now. Yes. Like, Okay, and that's where sort of the the difficulty is coming. Yeah, because again, is it's, it's they, coming the government. And, yeah. and then where in the public sector is that going to be funded? The, the governor Tony Evers has actually put out a plan, and again, this is where it's running into resistance on the legislative branches. I mentioned because you've got very very differing views um, in terms of how those folks want to see this happen, and and this all has to be contextualized within the overall state budget, and so. There's a lot, again, a lot of moving parts on this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad we got you covering it because it seems like you have got a great handle on all of these flying parts. And, you know, we'll look forward to you following up on this. Uh, Eric Fisher, thanks again for joining us. As always. Up next, Owen talks with Jason Mashara, the president of trading card company Upper Deck, about the recent revival of the co- collectibles industry and how it's affecting the sports business world. That conversation is coming up to you right after the break. I am joined now by Jason Mashara, president of Upper Deck. Welcome, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've been at Upper Deck for nearly 17 years, president for 10 of those. What is the biggest change you have seen in the trading card world in that time? Well, I I think the biggest change is watching Gen X come back in full force over the last five years or so and really get back and rediscover the hobby for the first time since maybe they were kids and then bring their kids into it for the first time, which is which is really fun. Mm -hmm. And how has Upper Deck kind of responded to to those generational shifts? Well, what you've seen is a lot of return to 
products, brands, and designs that echo what those customers or collectors saw in the 90s. So you're seeing a, a big strength in the Upper Deck Base brand, some of the FLIR brands, uh, SP and SP Authentic. Uh, so they recognize the brands coming back because the, the industry has changed. The, the cards are drastically uh, more tech heavy. They have autographs now in the packs. They have game used jerseys or piece of uh, actors wardrobes and things of that nature. So, you know, you try to connect some of the brands and names that they're familiar with from being a kid to, you know, what they see now when they come back. Yeah, I have to think being a, a brand that's been around for a long time is a huge advantage in an industry that is so much about nostalgia and memories. And if, if you're a brand new thing, it's hard to, uh, much harder to get people excited about you. Yeah, and I think the, the challenge for any brand in the space right now is to make sure that you're connecting with the lapse collector that maybe left for a while and is now back, but also appeal to a younger audience, especially one that's digital native, right? So you know, we created this Upper Deck EPAC system back in 2016 that allows people to open up packs virtually, but they're still physical cards. You can have them delivered to you at home, but it gives you the flexibility of doing it on your phone, on your tablet, uh, opening up packs on your computer, interacting with people all over the globe, being able to trade with people all over the globe. Uh, for those you know, collectors who have grown up in a digital environment and would prefer to collect in a digitally native environment. Yeah, that's an interesting bridge between the digital and physical because, I mean, this is 90s baseball card collector me speaking, but I still have trouble seeing something that is purely digital. I can see how the value spikes, people get excited, there's hype, but I have a harder time seeing how that holds its value because one thing about you know a card is that it can get lost, it can get damaged, it can get thrown away. And so over time, there are just naturally fewer and fewer of them, where as a digital thing, it doesn't necessarily have all those concerns. And maybe that's, you know, I'm just being slow to <laughs> ad adapt to the modern world in that respect. But, um, but, but also, we're just used to buying everything digitally now. And there are card shops in my area, but, you know, they're not, you, you don't just run into them anymore. You don't just stumble on, on your local card shop and they're more for, for hobbyists uh, than your you know, average person. So, yeah, that, that bridge is, is an interesting one where you found a way to... to kind of do both. Well, and I think it's important to, you know, allow people who love physical collectibles to be able to still collect them, but make them easier and more accessible in a, in a digital delivery system, right? We have launched a digital collectible system called Evolution because there are a subset of collectors now who would prefer just to collect digitally and experience opening packs digitally and just have a digital collectible experience. And, you know, I think the, the big thing for us and one of the biggest changes as you talk about what's changed over the last several years is we've really leaned into kind of the mantra of allowing people to collect however they want to, whenever they want to, wherever they want to. So, you know, we now have a generation of, of people who have never owned uh, a CD you know, a piece of vinyl, they've never owned a VHS tape or a DVD, they've never owned 
um, a video game, you know, they just download it and you have to be cognizant of that and respect that population and that generation. And, you know, that same group has no problem collecting a digital collectible, but you still have a lot of collectors that like the physical collectible as well. So, you know, our, our, our goal is to try to, to serve all those different demographics and market segments wherever we can. Yeah. So catch me up on the, the modern era here. Are collectors who are say 30 and under, are they just as excited about a digital collectible as they would be about, you know, a card or a Jersey? Well, you know, that's, that's the trick is I think it, it just comes down to personal preference. So, you know, the, the issue and why we did what we did with EPAC back in 2016 is we still feel that it's impossible to digitally recreate a player's autograph or a piece of their game used Jersey or a piece of a, you know, a wardrobe that was used in a Marvel movie like that, just, you know, having that in your hands and knowing that you got an autograph from an actor or athlete or having something that was actually used in a game that that's memorable is hard to replicate digitally. Right. So you have people who absolutely demand that as a collectible. The flip side is what we're finding out with digital collectibles is there are just things that you can do digitally that you can't do physically. Um, you know, the, the highlights and video is a really cool aspect of a digital collectible actually creating some motion and some 3D effects digitally can create a really cool digital collectible. Um, but it's just, it's, it tends to be a completely separate and distinguishable set of collectors for each is what we're seeing. If you know, we're looking, let's say 10 plus years into the future, what collectibles from today do you think are gonna be the, the revered, the valuable ones that people are collecting right now? Honestly, I think it's going to be a mix of everything. And, and look, the reality is, is that collectibles, when you look at the market as a whole, you know, a lot of collectibles don't appeal to most people. So like, I love sports cards, comic books, memorabilia. I'm not an art collector, right? I don't, there's people that collect spoons or Disney pins and things of that nature. So really the reality is, is each genre of collectibles are kind of their own niche, right? So I think it's the same thing going forward. Like I think there are gonna be very valuable digital collectibles. They'll be very visible uh, and, and um, valuable trading cards. They'll be very valuable game use jerseys or autograph jerseys, things of that nature. Um, but you know, which one dominates or which one is the most expensive? It's hard to say at this point. Just on your own collection, favorite Sports card and favorite comic book? Well, my my answer on the sports card always is I, I got a Mario Lemieux uh, Opeachy rookie that is my favorite because when I was in high school, one of my quote unquote friends stole it and you know it took me <laughs> took me years to replace it. Um, comic book uh, would be my X-Men 58. Uh, I've got a, a nice high grade X-Men 58. So when I started in the comic book collecting, my first series that I ever read was started with X-Men 270. Uh, it was a series called The Extinction Agenda, and Havoc was the main character, and X-Men 58's his first appearance. Okay, nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. I got into X-Men through the movies. I haven't done the comic books, I'll admit, but um, but yeah, I have, I have a lot of opinions about that particular <laughs> series. So I'll save those for when I'm on someone else's podcast. Um, 
Thinking about the, the 1989 Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, Upper Deck, um, that was like an iconic card, one of the most iconic, I think the most iconic card of that era. One of, let's say, top 10 most iconic cards probably in the history of trading cards. Not the not in the top 10 most valuable, I, I don't think, but um, if it is, I will redouble my efforts to find my copy, which I think is somewhere <laughs> in my childhood home. Uh, anyway, do you think it's possible for a card today to have that kind of stature. It just feels like everything is so diffuse and spread out and you can collect a zillion different things and everyone's, you know, got, got their own angle on it. Um, I'm wondering if there is something that can stand out like that today, the way that card did in 1989. I think it will be something that is not extremely obvious today, right? So I think it could be something from the Marvel line of trading cards you know as we look back and marvel becomes more and more culturally significant every day uh, it could be a sport that isn't super popular today but is you know super popular you know 20 years from now you know we made alex morgan rookie cards back in 2010 2011 you know 20 years from now alex morgan could be seen as you know one of the best soccer players of all time you may see something like that pop up or it could be a non-traditional sport or you know as tastes and and things change you know you may look back and, and see that i don't think it will be anything that's extremely obvious at this point yeah and alex morgan's an interesting example because she's one of those athletes that has transcended her sport to be a cultural figure that a lot of people know about even if they're not particularly into soccer no. um uh, just to wrap us up, what are the developments in the in your space that you see coming down the road, or that you are innovating as a company to you know try to stay up in this world? Well, I think for us, like we talked about, was our our e commerce platforms we're really focused on, and you know being able to make sure that we allow people to to buy however, whenever, wherever they want. So we'll continue to support the brick and more trading card stores. And there are some fantastic ones out there. They're very different now than the ones that we saw for the most part in the 80s and 90s. I mean, some of these are just uh, merchandising marvels at this point. Uh, very clean, very inviting, uh, very exciting. They don't look like the ones that you saw on The Simpsons, right, when we were growing up. Um, but you know, we've got these online platforms that not only include trading cards, but also digital collectibles. We have a, a, a sister site called uh, Collect Forever that connects with these, that sells comic books and figurines and, and more collectibles coming in uh, and really giving collectors the ability to buy whatever collectible they want and be able to have one place where they can collect and store and trade and uh, you know, really curate their collection as, as they move forward. I mean, that's really the, the big innovation that we've had over the last 10 years. And I think it will continue to be an important part of the hobby going forward. All right. Jason Mashara, flanked by a Michael Jordan and a Connor McDavid jersey. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us on the show. Appreciate it, man. Thank you again to Jason Mashara. And thank you to all you listeners out there for tuning in with us. Uh, please, please feel free to leave us a rating and or review and be sure to spread the good word about our show. We'll catch you tomorrow here on Front Office Sports Today. Take care.